Well, good morning, church. Uh, my name is T.D. Davis. I have the privilege of leading this amazing church uh, alongside my wife, Callie, who's actually in Washington State right now. She's uh, speaking at a middle school camp, so pray for her, middle schoolers. I thought we got out of youth ministry when we did this lead pastor thing. Anyway, uh, anyway, she's preaching and doing an incredible job up there and just heard some of the praise reports of the way that God's moving uh, up in Washington, which is actually my home state, so it's funny that she got to go and I, I, I stayed, so she got to see my family and apparently I got to stay, so anyway, whatever, not bitter. Uh, anyway, but I'm so glad just to be here this morning, church, because this morning we're starting something new. We're starting a new series and we're going to open our Bibles and just really quickly, the, the title of this series that we're going to be looking at in the scriptures this morning is called Great is Greater Than Good. And the subtitle of that, Things That Jesus Prioritized. Um, here's what I know. I, we all want great things in our life. I don't know about you, but I'm like, hey, great things, yeah, plus my life. Yes, please. You know what I mean? I, I want great things. But here's what I believe. I believe this is kind of a conviction is that sometimes I believe good can become the biggest enemy of great. You might say, what do you, what do you mean by that? Uh, sometimes I just, I truly believe this. We can get so caught up with so many, with a variety of good things in our life that it dilute, dilutes our life down to a point where we actually never feel like or contribute or look back at what we've done in our life and feel like we've done something great. We live in this culture of busyness. And it's funny because uh, Callie and I, we moved uh, to Ponca uh, a little over two years ago and came from the Los Angeles area. And people are like, man, it's so fast-paced. It's so busy. It's so busy. But you know what I realized moving to Oklahoma? Yeah, the culture is different, but there's still this tendency of busyness in our lives. That we crowd our lives with so many different things that it's interesting that we sometimes are like, as long as I'm busy, as long as I'm having activity in my life. But here's what I've learned is that activity doesn't always equal accomplishment, right? If you crowd your life with tons of different things, that doesn't actually mean that you're going to get stuff done. Just because you're busy doesn't mean you're being effective. And here's what I know about our lives is that God has created us in a way where we are designed to be effective people. He hasn't designed us in a way where we're just going to be kind of crowded with just good. He has called us to be people as his creation to be great and to do great things in our lives. So this whole idea of, 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 of great being greater than good gets kind of confusing in terms of even our spiritual journey or how we relate to God or we relate to a higher power. It's like, how does this re relate? How do we apply this as maybe a follower of Jesus this morning? How do we apply this as maybe churchgoers, maybe as people that deem ourselves to be Christians, right, that have that or carry that title? What does this mean for us? Because here's the deal. If, 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 if you're in here with the conviction maybe that Jesus is perfect and God set a plan in motion for his son, Jesus, to come deal with the human frailty issue in our lives, actually dealt with that, gives us this new life, gives us the freedom because of what he's done, what did Jesus, as perfect, fully God, fully man, as the Bible would say, what, what did he consider to be great? What did he prioritize as his focus? If we're in here this morning and we're like, okay, like, I, 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 can, I can understand this whole idea that Jesus is perfect. Okay, so from perfection, what, what, would, what would perfection say is great? And here's what I'm realizing is that many people are familiar with Jesus in our culture. And it's really easy, and this happens very often now, is that people are, people are capable 
and able to sniff out the, the insincerity within Christianity today. In fact, love him or hate him, I thought this quote was interesting recently. Stephen Colbert, he said this. He said, if this is going to be a Christian nation that doesn't help the poor, either we have to pretend that Jesus was just as selfish as we are, or we've got to acknowledge that he commanded us to love the poor and serve the needy without condition, and then admit that we just don't want to do it. Here's the issue. So some of us are like, Stephen Colbert, you start getting fired up, you know. How dare he say something like that? And we begin to wage war on comments such as these, where there's a disconnect, an obvious disconnect on what people see Jesus to be and then Jesus' followers. And people just begin to wage war on those very comments or these disconnects that everybody's seeing in terms of hypocritical behavior, right? You know what happens when we wage war on that? It just reveals how hypocritical we truly are, how imperfect we really are. It just points the point out so much clearer because we want to wage war and act like this isn't a problem. But here's the posture I feel like we should probably take in our current culture in our day and age. Let's choose a posture of humility. I believe the biggest antidote for hypocrisy within the church is humility. Being people that just choose to listen. What's, what's the culture saying? What are people saying about followers of Jesus? Where is there a disconnect? And maybe understanding as imperfect people, maybe, man, maybe, maybe the church has got a little bit off in terms of the things that Jesus has prioritized. So I want to encourage us this morning. I want to encourage us to take a posture of humility and saying, okay, God, God, would you reveal to me maybe the areas of my life where I haven't taken that posture? Maybe the areas of my life where I've chosen hypocrisy and I haven't taken a posture where I just sit back and listen and identify from a personal level maybe where I've gotten off. Because Jesus, you've prioritized great things. And great is greater than good. So this morning, we're going to look at what Jesus prioritized. We're going to start off with one uh, topic in particular this morning. But I just believe this. If we miss the great things that Jesus prioritized, what's going to really happen for our lives, and this might be a frustration for you in your own life right now, is that you begin to just walk through life pretty frustrated trying to accomplish good things on your own. And when you try to do those things on your own and you try to tr accomplish good things, you not only miss out on great, but you begin to live a life of mediocrity. Once again, I don't believe that that type of lifestyle is the life that God has called each and every one of us to. So we're going to open the Bible this morning, Matthew chapter 22, and, and this question of what is the greatest gets asked and is presented to Jesus. So we're going to look at his response, and then we're going to play with that a little bit and make some practical applications. So Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 38. If you don't have a Bible this morning, just follow along on the screen. It says this, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. So we're referring to a specific people group that is known for oppressing people with very religious law. So they're trying to corner Jesus. And one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. He says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Here it is. Not good. Not okay. Not mediocre. Man, this guy asks the question. What is the greatest? What is the greatest? And Jesus, if you've ever read the Bible, sometimes it can seem very confusing Sometimes there's different forms of literature. We have the wisdom literature. We have the Psalms, right? We have all these different forms of literature. 
right now in this, this is what we would call a narrative. And I love it because Jesus doesn't speak in code. They're asking, what is the greatest? And he, and he gives a really direct response that we shouldn't avoid this morning. And this is what he says. He says, he replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Can we pray this morning? Lord God, we're so thankful that, Lord, you're the author of life. So this morning, we choose to take a posture of humility in your presence, Lord. Maybe there's ways where we're like, we've got this figured out. We've got this thing called life figured out. But Lord, would we open ourselves to be lifetime learners? Lifetime people that are understanding you're choosing to transform us. And, and what a beautiful thing that is that we don't have to come to you acting like we're perfect, but we understand that you're the perfecter. So this morning, perfect us in the ways that we need to be perfected. Change us. Transform us. Lord, would there be something that supernaturally happened in our hearts and our minds this morning? Would we expect you as the God of the universe to do a big thing? So, Lord, speak to us. Speak to us clearly this morning. In the ways that maybe we've gotten off track, Lord, we want to get back on track with you this morning. So move in our hearts and speak loudly to the ways that we need to be spoken to. Lord, we love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen, amen. Okay, so... Love. We're talking about this topic of loving God, but here's what's so interesting is love is defined in so many different ways. And I found this article online, uh, and this guy wrote this article. It says, years ago, a group of professionals asked the question, what does love mean to a group of four to eight-year-olds? I love this because Luca, our son, he's three. He's about to turn four in September. So, man, I read this. I was like, man, this is like right. This is like, you know, target on my heart right now in this season of life. I'm just really enjoying um, him and seeing him grow up. These children's answers will make you smile, laugh, and even cry. So here we go. Here's some answers from some of these kids and what they said defined love as. Love is when my mommy makes coffee for my daddy and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure the taste is okay. Danny, age seven. When my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. Rebecca, age eight precious. When someone loves you the way they say your name is different, you know that your name is safe in their mouth. Billy, age four. Come on. Woo. Love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne and they go out and smell each other. Carl, age five. If you want to lo learn to love better, you should start with a friend you hate. Woo. Nika, age six. Love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your french fries without making them give you any of theirs. Chrissy, age six. So much wisdom wrapped up in here, you know what I'm saying? Love is what makes you smile when you're tired. Terry, age four. There are two kinds of love. Our love, God's love. But God makes both kinds of them. Jenny, age eight. Love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt, then he wears it every day. Noel, age seven. Love is when, or love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. Bobby, age seven. Whoo, dang, it's good. Love is like a little old woman and a little old man who are still friends even after they know each other so well. Tommy, age seven, or age six. I like this one. During my piano recital, I was on stage and I was scared. I looked at all the people watching me and saw my daddy waving and smiling. He was the only one doing that. I wasn't scared anymore. Cindy, age eight. My mommy loves me more than anybody. You don't see anyone else kissing me to sleep at night. 
Claire, age six. <laughs> I let my big sister pick on me because my mom says she only picks on me because she loves me. So I pick on my baby sister because I love her. Bethany, age four. Love is when mommy gives daddy the best piece of chicken. Elaine, age five. Love is when mommy sees daddy smelly and sweaty and still says he is handsomer than Robert Redford. Chris, age seven. Love is when your puppy licks your face even after you left him alone all day. Marianne, age four. I know my older sister, sister loves me because she gives me all her old clothes and has to go out and buy new ones. Lauren, age four. It's the most optimistic version of hand-me-downs I've ever, you know. Uh, love is when mommy sees daddy on the toilet and she doesn't think it's gross. Mark, age six. And all the married people said amen. Come on. Uh, you really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot. People forget. Jessica, age eight. Wow. In the last one, when you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. Karen, age seven. And here's my point this morning is that, man, we define love in so many different ways. And it can be defined in so many different ways, right? But you as a person, you know love when you experience it. You know what that feels like to be a recipient of love. But sometimes we get really choosy on who we choose to love ourselves. Maybe that's a mistrust based on things that have happened in our past. Man, we know love when we sense it, but man, sometimes we as people, we become so fickle because we don't always want to give our love. And it's interesting because what Jesus prioritized, he says, give your love, but give it first and foremost to me. So this morning, we're going to look at what Jesus meant when he said to love him. And not only to love him as the greatest, but do it through our mind, our heart, and our soul. So number one this morning, if you're taking notes, we're going to talk about the worthiness of God and his love. And this is number one this morning. It'll be up on the screens. It says this, he is worthy of our love because no one is smarter than him. I like to play to the, the logical people in the house. I'm a logical guy. I love reading a lot of uh, theology. I love thinking about one of the ways that I feel really close to God is, is really connecting with him on a logical level. And there's a lot of logical people that have just dismissed the church. But I love it because if we're going to talk about log logic, if we're going to talk about knowledge, we have to understand and come with, to grips with the fact that no one is smarter than God. And that's, that's, that's something that, as a logical person, that's sometimes difficult to rest in. But it's also very, man, it brings a peace in understanding that I'm not smarter than God. He, he's actually got this whole thing figured out, and there's a limit in our humanity. Psalm 147.5 says this, up on the screen. It says, great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. Man, I love that promise in the scriptures about who God is, once again, in his character and how great he is. He is what we would use as the term to describe God and his character as omniscient, all-knowing. He knows all. And when it comes to loving him, that's a good thing of understanding who we're loving and understanding that he knows all. God knows all. He's worthy of our love because he understands each and every scenario that could possibly ever happen in our lives. I think about God, I think about his character, and sometimes his character gets a little messed up when we look at the Bible and we read in what we would call the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, right? But I look at God's character and I look at how he related to people and met people right where they were at. 
I think of the people of God, the people of Israel, who many times were fickle because they're humans just like us who make mistakes and understand that they're imperfect. But God set these laws into motion. And it's interesting because culture during this time, uh, during the Old Testament, the ancient Near East, man, people ran in cultures based on rules. So God applied some rules to his people, the people of God. And I just want to, the Ten Commandments were these rules that were given. And many of us are familiar with this idea of the Ten Commandments, right? But I just want to look at the top four, the first four that he gives, and just really recognize, man, the logic within God to care for his people, maybe on a level that we've never really thought about before. The first four of the Ten Commandments, number one, he says, you're to have no other gods before me, right? And what he's basically saying, translation, don't worship Satan. Don't worship demonic influences. See, we get into this weird conversation when we talk, start talking about spirituality because we, like, kind of get weirded out by the fact that, like, there's forces within the spirit realm. But I love it because God recognizes that. God recognizes that evil forces have run rampant around our earth. And not only did he set a plan into motion, but he also understands that you don't want to jump on that side. You want to be on this side. You want to be in a place where the goodness of God is overseeing your life, blessing your life. And I'll say this, if you don't have a good kind of perspective of spirituality and, and the demonic and, 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 and kind of evil forces and these types of things, I would just encourage you to watch the horror movie The Conjuring. That will give you really up to speed and help you understand that, man, there are evil forces in this world. There are forces of evil that can come and attack. I love it. At the end of this movie, this is one of my favorite movies. You think I'm weird because I'm a pastor and I'm talking about like horror movies or whatever. But just hear me for a second. At the end of this movie, like, you see all these forces of evil kind of running rampant. And then the, 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 the director of the movie or the producer gives you this quote basically saying, hey, there's two sides. There's good, there's evil, and you got to choose one. So what's your choice going to be? And I'd say the same thing in the Ten Commandments, the heart of God saying, hey, like choose me. Choose me, because when you don't choose me, man, you, you open your soul, you open your life up to the evil forces that, that we haven't, we can't deal with on our own because we see it, we try to do it, we try to apply, we try to help, but we realize, come on, we got a vacuum, a never-ending vacuum that, that exists within our soul that we can't deal with on our own. So I love it from a logical level. God's like, I'm, I see it, and I'm just trying to help you understand that, man, you need to place me first in your life. The next commandment that he talks about, no idols. Don't worship what evil is trying to sell you, right? Not only don't place it there, but don't buy into the lies that sometimes corrupt or bring things into our life that just don't produce good things, don't produce fruit, right? Our time, our talent. Man, does the position we have in our life or the money that we make solve all the world's problems? No. But this is a narrative that gets pushed in our culture. We gotta climb the ladder. We gotta be on top of the success. We gotta have the glory. We gotta have all the money. Man, we wanna do that because that equals success. And God's saying, no, don't buy into that. Define success differently because those things can become idols within your life. And then things get prioritized in a way that won't be fruitful because He cares for us and He cared for His people during this time. As people were living in perfect lives, He's like, man, let this define. My people, my culture, don't be defined by all these other things that are, you're getting distracted with. The third one, he says, don't use the Lord's name in vain. I love this one because in our culture, through our Western lens, we've reduced this down to two words, God and damn. Those two words is not what God is talking about. Because movies that are rated R with that phrase in it didn't exist actually when the Ten Commandments were being given, right? But we've reversed it and applied this in a way that's reduced the point. The point is this, do not use God's name for your own personal gain. 
Do not use the title, maybe Christian, follower of Jesus in a way so you can take advantage of other people. This is what many sleazy guys at Bible college would often do to date girls that they wanted to date. Well, I'm a Bible college student. It's like, that doesn't mean anything. What does the fruit of your life look like? Why are you using the Lord's name in vain to get ahead? And when you're a person that uses something to get ahead, all it does is reveal, once again, the state of your soul and the imperfection that exists. And God's saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Let me be the priority in your life. Let me show off. Don't use my name in vain, but understand there's power in who I am when you choose to be a follower of me. Then the fourth commandment is Sabbath, a day of rest. I love that because God, in his omniscience, knowing all, is saying, you're not infinite. Even though God being infinite, you know what he did on the seventh day in creation? He rested. And he encourages us to do that because he models it for us to show us once again, man, we can't do life. There's a limit our bodies can get. We need to have good boundaries and really need to honor rest in our lives. We need to honor the fact that we are not infinite in our body, in our nature, and that our bodies need to rest, need to heal. No one is smarter than God. I love his consistent character throughout the Bible. Although it looks different, although he related to people differently in a different culture, man, the pinnacle was Jesus. As he set a plan in motion for Jesus to take care of the things in this world that cause us to fall short from his glory and his perfection. But most of all, when it comes to God being smart, he puts the ball in our court. We got this thing called free will. He doesn't force us. We're not robots, right? I think about parents. I think about being a kid growing up and our parents, you know, whatever that, that looked like for you or your guardian or whoever raised you, like commanding things for you to do. Rules, right? But you, honestly, you don't have to do it. You can be rebellious. You can choose to be rebellious even though your parents would encourage something. You can be a person who's on a team or a person in school and your coach or your teacher is commanding you, giving you rules to follow. But how many of you guys know you, get, you can have free will to do whatever you want. You can get in trouble. You can be that kid or that person who's constantly in the principal's office. You can be that person who rebels, right? What about the army? From a soldier perspective, a commanding officer. You don't have to follow your commanding officer. And you're going to be disciplined if you don't. But I think it's interesting because responsible parents want the best. And they've experienced this thing called life. So they're going to encourage things that you don't have to necessarily follow. But they're commanding out of a place of knowledge. Commanding out of a place. I don't want you to make the same mistakes maybe that I have. Maybe a coach or a teacher understands they have knowledge about wanting the best for you. What success looks like for school. What success looks like in terms of a sport or an activity. They're encouraging you in those things because they know that's why they're in that position. A commanding officer when it comes to strategy. When it comes to a game plan, there's format because they know what success looks like because they have knowledge. And the same thing applies with God. No one is smarter than him. He has infinite knowledge and knowing and understanding what is going to actually create success, true success for our lives. So he's commanded us to prioritize something called loving him. And we need to be people that choose to love him and prioritize our love for him because no one knows more and is smarter than God. Really quickly up on the screen, God prioritizes our love for him because he is the source of knowing the best route for your life. He knows all. He knows the best route. And if you feel like you've gotten off track, I love it. God's spirit, his Holy Spirit, it's like a GPS. You're like, well, I made all these mistakes and stuff. It's like, okay, 
great. You know what? Holy Spirit, GPS, get you right back on track. Let today be the day where that happens. Start trusting him. Start loving him today and understand that he knows all. And he's going to help you, help you guide and get on track by just simply trusting and loving him as supreme in your life. Amen? Number two, if you're taking notes this morning, he is worthy of our love because no one loves more than him. So we talked about the mind, worshiping him with our minds, right? Mind, heart, soul. What about our heart? How's the state of our heart? And understanding that no one loves more than God does. No one. 1 John chapter 4, let's read a few verses that are going to kind of help us unpack this. But it says, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. It's amazing. By loving God, by loving, placing your faith and loving Jesus, man, you get to experience this power and this connection with God that he promises, right? Verse 16, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. Man, judgment clouds us sometimes. And, oh, God is a judgmental God, but I love it. <laughs> What's being encouraged here is like, no, 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 wait a second. There's no fear in love. When we're surrounded by what God prioritizes, we understand that we don't need to look at God and think of judgment in terms of scared, being scared and being fearful because we understand that love justifies us. His grace justifies us. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. I love that. It starts with God. He's the source of love. He's the greatest lover. He is the one. He is made supreme. Once again, no one loves more than God. His heart is this. He loved you first. He did. His love is perfect, and he chose you, and he loves you. He sees you as his creation, and he has a purpose. He has plans for you. He delights in you. He likes you. He loves you. This is God and how he thinks about us. But for some of us, we have to transition from the idea to authentic relationship. Do you love the idea of God this morning, or do you love God because his love is a reality that you experience in relationship with him? Sometimes I think we have good ideas about God. Yeah, God is love, you know what I mean? But man, I'll tell you what. When you're actually connected with God, when you have a relationship with him, when you invest in him, when you don't neglect him, here's what I know. You neglect relationships, those relationships die. The same thing with God. The same thing. But when we actually begin to invest in a relationship with God, when we spend time seeking him, reading his word, spending time in prayer, maybe that's just a little bit. Once again, God's not... Expecting perfection here this morning. But start to dip into those things. You start to dip into who God is. And it transitions from an idea about God to an actual experience and transformation with God. When we begin to invest in the relationship with God. I think back to my Bible college days. My first semester. And uh, going through a whole semester. And near the end of the semester, it was like I saw this girl on campus. Uh, and she was absolutely beautiful. Blonde, beautiful. Uh, it ended up being my wife, Callie. For those of you who know her, right? But I'll never forget it. It was an idea, right? It's like, oh, I see this gorgeous girl across campus, and now what do I do? Well, the, the 
natural thing at that time in 2007, I think, is uh, I got a Facebook stalker. You know what I mean? I'm that guy, right? I got a chick. Got check her out on Facebook. Now we have things like catfish. You know, have you ever seen the show on MTV where you know people are like making relationships online and then they end up not being who they say they are? They put up fake pictures and then you actually meet them and it's like, oh, that's not the person you acted like you were, right? So before catfish, we had Facebook stalking. You know what I'm saying? So I never forget this. I was like, who is this girl? Like I've never seen her before. She was always off campus. It was like I saw her a few times and I'm like, I got to get to know this girl, right? And I remember Facebook stalking her and being like, oh, like here's where she's from. She's from Oklahoma. Yeah, small town girl, cool, yeah. You know, I'm getting stoked, and I'm building this all up in my mind. But here's what's so amazing, is you can build all these ideas up in your mind and have a disconnect, but here's what happens. When I started getting to actually know Callie, when I transitioned from being the stalker guy into actually like, maybe I should have a relationship with this person and be normal, when we actually started to have a dating relationship, man, it was so much better. So much better than idea. So much better than anything I could have ever built up in my mind. Because I met the person that God had placed in my life that I was going to marry, that I was going to build a family with, that I was going to build a future with. Come on, somebody. And I love this because as I got to know Callie, I got to know that she was, what she had to offer in terms of, man, her as a human being, the way I related to her in my life, it was so much better than anything I could have had in terms of an idea. It was true. It was authentic. But the same thing exists with God, you guys. And this is what's so amazing about God is his love is limitless. Meaning this, it's like you can continue to pursue, pursue, pursue God, and you just are only scratching the surface of how much he loves us and cares for us. Man, here, here's the deal. Is there's a limit when it comes to humanity. Sometimes in marriage, this is we make this big mistake. It's like we marry, get married, and we're like, man, this person's going to complete me. It's my soulmate. It's like, that's great for Jerry Maguire in Hollywood, but the reality is that person does not fulfill you. That person, that's, that's what God talked about in those Ten Commandments, remember, idolatry. Sometimes our spouse becomes our idol, and we expect things out of them that they can't deal with when it comes to soul issues in our life. But what God does, man, when we get into a relationship with him and we understand there's limits when it comes to our humanity, we realize the more we invest in our relationship with him, the more he reveals how much he loves you, how much he loves each and every one of us, how perfect his love is. And he showers us with that love over and over and over again. But we've got to be people that choose to invest. His love is unlimited. And God, up on the screen, God prioritizes our love for him because he is the source of perfect love. He's the source. Man, you know love when you sense it. But you want to be a person that knows and understands how to give it? Let the wellspring of God's love come out of your life. And that's a byproduct when you start dealing with the source of perfect love. A Jesus-like love. A love that says, this isn't about me, but it's about my sacrifice for the sake of somebody else. A love that says, no, it's not about me feeling good and like warm fuzzies and all this stuff. But a love that says, I'm willing to lay down my life for other people. You see, Jesus did that for us. And when he did that for us, he modeled something that's so contrary to the imperfect human frailty that exists. Because we're constantly trying to find things that invest in us to make us feel good. Jesus flips the script and says, nah, love is something that's sacrificial. And I'm going to show you by his Jesus-like love, that agape love the Bible talks about, he gives us a new standard and understanding that, man, without him, separated from God, man, we're always trying to constantly please this guy. But with his type of love, he shifts the capacity. He gives us the power and the capacity to love people selflessly, just like 
he chose to do for us. Amen? Lastly, and this is where I really want to dig in this morning. Number three. Number three up on the screen says this. He is worthy of our love because no one is more secure to trust than him. Number three. He's worthy of our love because no one is more secure to trust than him. Psalm 13.5 says this. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I love that. I love the psalmist. He's talking about trusting in this unfailing love. See, we have to be people that trust. And I, here's what I know about relationships. That, that sometimes we get burned. And our trust in, within humanity kind of takes a disconnect, takes a backseat. And we realize out of our imperfection that it's sometimes really hard to trust people. But unfortunately, because of that, we begin to place our trust somewhere. It's not like the trust just goes away and we don't place it somewhere. We begin to replace our trust in other directions. I often think about it of like, who do you trust with your soul? It's like match.com for your soul. You know what I mean? Like, I'm trying to get hooked up here. I'm trying to find somebody for my soul to match up with. And this is what the world does. The world begins to give us like things that we believe in our souls that we need to like match up with. And sometimes that's the, the, the idea of image. The spirit of image. That you need to match your soul up with image. Where you're a person that maybe you struggle with self-worth and insecurity, right? But now you, you're beginning to invest in it all about fake image. Just presenting something, projecting something for people to see. That's not actually true and authentic because of the insecurity. Maybe you match your soul up with a different spirit, a spirit of other form of insecurity. Because maybe you come from a background with broken family and relationships. I know for me, I don't have a relationship with my biological dad. I come from that type of background. And it's so easy to navigate your life and, and place your soul in the trust of other people, whether you realize it or not. But you're trusting in certain areas, right? Where it becomes all about finding emotional stability in other people. You're meeting that void that exists within this detriment of your soul, and you begin to fulfill it through other people, emotionally, physically, right? Maybe we match our, ourselves up with the spirit of shame. And we believe in our minds that our mistakes are unforgivable, right? So we're constantly trying to do, 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 do. Make amends with God. Making decisions of like, well, my soul will feel fulfilled if I do enough good things that, that kind of outweigh the bad, right? But here's the deal. If you're familiar with websites, every website's got a domain host. And when it comes to the website of life in this world, unfortunately, the web hoster, the domain host, is this dude called the devil, Right? But here's the amazing thing about Jesus, right? Through this metaphor and through this reality of who our souls match up with, God has given us a new web address, a completely different one that we have access to. We got the password. The password is through him, through Jesus, through what he's done. And the website's called christianmingle.com. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Come on, you Christian singles, christianmingle.com. So cheesy. Uh, here we go. Do we trust God, though? Do we trust him to be Savior and Messiah? I love this quote. I'm going to read a quote from Bono, from U2. Lead singer U2. Yeah, come on, somebody. Talking about Jesus as Messiah. I love what he said. He said this a while back. He said, I think a defining question for a Christian is, who is Christ? He went on to say, and I don't think you're let off easily by saying a great thinker or a great philosopher. Because actually, he went around saying he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the Son of God. So either, in my view, was the Son of God or he was nuts. 
And I find it hard to accept that whole millions and millions of lives, half the earth, for 2,000 years have been touched, have felt their lives touched and inspired by some nutter. I love that. Who do we portray Jesus to be in our lives? How have we portrayed him? Maybe that's the obstacle of placing our trust in loving a God like this because there's been so many different forms of Jesus maybe projected to us. There's a guy named Kevin DeYoung. He wrote a widely read blog post where he, had 50, he listed 15 different ways Jesus is presented today. And I'm just going to read the top five that he talks about in this article. I think it will get the point across. There's Republican Jesus who is against tax increases and activist judges and for family values and owning firearms. There's Democrat Jesus who is against Wall Street and Walmart and for reducing our carbon footprint and spending other people's money. There's therapist Jesus who helps us cope with life's problems, heals our past, tells us how special we are, and not to be too hard on ourselves. There's Starbucks Jesus who sits all day in coffee shops, loves spiritual conversations, drives a hybrid, and goes to film festivals. There's open-minded Jesus who accepts every viewpoint from every person regardless of how absurd it might be. He doesn't, however, accept people who are not as open as he is. Who are we projecting? What are we projecting? Maybe what has been projected towards you? And here's what I want to talk about. The God of the Bible projects a few different things. The God of the Bible, first and foremost, projects this idea of the virgin birth, right? The Bible says that Jesus is fully God, fully man. That a lot of people come from a spiritual understanding of like, they start at Jesus' ministry. And Jesus' ministry is powerful, I get that. But they project this and missing a big point of Jesus' life and who he is as the God of the Bible. The narrative of Jesus doesn't start like he drops on the scene and just starts healing power and people are supernatural and all these different things. People know about those things. But the beginning started when Jesus submitted himself to a human process. Can we understand this this morning? He didn't have to be fully God, fully man. He chose to do the fully man part. He chose to submit to a process, being birthed. Being birthed and going through growing up, maturing, and understanding what it meant to be human. And can I have us understand this morning? Man, we want to push Jesus in all these different pictures and sub-pictures that we've created. But first and foremost, we need to understand is that Jesus submitted to a process that he's trustworthy and true because he's experienced life just like you and I. So he can relate. Although he is God, he submits at a human level to a process of feeling all the aches and pains of what it means to be human. So that when you're going through a trial, when you're going through pain, the, the term God with us, Emmanuel, is so true because Jesus relates and understands that very pain, that very season. That is the Jesus. That is the God of the Bible. Messiah is a title Jesus of the Bible is given. Savior, also known as setting the record straight. Answering the question, did God make the world this way? Did God make the world this way? People see evil running rampant in our world and they question God's justice. I love what Messiah answers this question with. Did God create the world this way? A resounding and an absolute no, he did not. Hence why he is titled the Messiah. He saw what was wrong with the world. He saw what crept into the world. And he says, I'm going to set a plan in motion and deal with this once for all. But I'm not going to be forceful. But I'm going to send my son as the perfect sacrifice to deal with sin once for all. And we're going to flip the script on this whole thing called the human life on this earth. And understand that the goodness of God is going to be spread. Because I have set a plan into motion. And I've dealt with the issue of sin and falling short of the glory of God once for all. 
the God of the Bible, he's got a message. The gospel, this message that he tells people to talk about, about him, about how he was the plan set into motion and dealt with all the issues that exist in the world. But that's dealt with in a, in a capacity of telling other people. I often think about how did the church gain the reputation that it has in its current day? Because the gospel, it's good news. How have we gotten off track where the message has changed and we've projected something completely different to people? This is a good news for the human soul and the human capacity and the ways that we fall short. Grace. God of the Bible. Different than karma. I'm going to read another Bono quote. Is that okay, Liz, this morning? Any, all you U2 fans, you know, itching ears this morning? No. Uh, okay. What you put out comes back to you. An eye for an eye. This is Bono talking about grace. A tooth for a tooth. Or in physics and physical laws, every action is met by an equal or an opposite one. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet, along comes this idea called grace to append all that. As you reap, so you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts. If you like the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am. And I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. Grace defies karma. You get what you don't deserve with grace. Man, I'm sick of hearing Christians being like, well, that's karma. Because if you really submit yourself to the idea of karma, you've submitted yourself to the way that the world is on its own, distant from God's grace breaking in. And grace says that, yeah, we understand that people get what they deserve. People are imperfect. People make mistakes. But grace says, no, 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 you don't get that. Actually, you get freedom because of what Jesus has done for you. And I want to say this about karma because some people are really big on karma. Karma doesn't deal with suffering. Because you know what karma says? If you really hold to karma, let's go from a logical level, that when anything bad happens to you, it's because there's something wrong with you. How many of you guys know that horrible, horrendous things happen in this earth to great, faithful people? Karma falls on his face when you understand that just because great things are happening to you doesn't always mean great results. But here's what God does. When there's a crappy situation in your life, when there's something you feel like you can't get through, when you're suffering, God as Emmanuel, come on, he comes within that situation and he gives you a way out because of his grace, his power. Grace reigns supreme in the way the God of the Bible is portrayed through Jesus. And then lastly, we can have faith in the midst of sin. You and I, if you place your faith in Jesus, you start being a follower of Jesus. How many of you guys know that that doesn't mean everything just changes in your life completely? There's still sin. There's still mistakes. There's still imperfection. But in the midst of that, God allows us to take a capacity and have a capacity of placing our faith in him on an ongoing basis. Until that day where we breathe our last breath. Until that day where our soul meets Jesus. Man, we can have faith and hope, understanding that we are going to be imperfect people that are striving to be more and more like Jesus. And in the midst of that, we can have faith by grace, through faith until our death. We live under this old master that we're used to, and now God gives us a new capacity to learn and live from a new master. That takes time. That takes understanding. And that takes Placing our trust and faith into a God that we're saying, we're going to invest our relationship within you because we love you, God. 
couple verses that hammer in this point up on the screen. John 3.16. The verse of the Bible, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. 1 John 4, 9 through 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He has given you every reason to trust him and love him. He's so trustworthy. Up on the screen, lastly, God prioritizes our love for him because he is the source of having hope to trust again. Some of us in the room, we don't trust well. There's been some stuff that's happened in our life. There's been a disconnect in trust. But maybe there's been a disconnect between you and God because of those things. But God's just saying this morning, come on, trust in me again. Love me again because I'm worthy. When you begin to love, your whole life begins to get informed and, and the trajectory changes. And the good from great starts to be transitioned. I can't fall in love for you. I'd love that as your pastor. I'd love to make you fall in love with God for you, but, but I can't. But I think that's the beauty of God and his grace. Once again, not being robotic, but allowing people to have a choice. But this morning, my hope is that God has created a clear picture for you and how trustworthy and how true and how infinite his knowledge is and what his heart looks like towards humanity. Not a heart of judgment, but a heart of patience to say, get in on this. And he's going to send his church out so that others can get in on this free gift as well. I can't fall in love for you. You've got to choose to let God have it all. God wants you to fall in love with him. Truly because he's already fallen in love with you. He loves you so much. You might not have fallen in love with him yet. But hear this this morning. He has already fallen deeply in love with you. You cannot out love God. You can't out love him. And that's why his love is supreme. That's why it's so beautiful when we place that love, that trust in him. Because it begins to inform us. So this morning... As we close, are you like me? You getting frustrated with the world in its current state? I don't know about you. I just get, I get mad when I see the indifference in the world, when I see the suffering and the evil running rampant, when I read the headlines, when I browse my news feed on my phone. Man, it just starts to bog down on your life. And for each and every one of us, we realize it boils down to the human capacity, the limits that we have. Maybe you're like me, you get exhausted with the state of the world. Sometimes I just feel exhausted by the weight of the world and the things that I see. The decisions and the horrible decisions that sometimes human beings make. But this morning, it's time. It's time to stop allowing mediocre to be the standard. It's time to stop crowding our lives with things because we're like, these are good things. But take cues from the Lord of the universe and saying, 
this is what we're going to make supreme in our lives. This is what's great, is that we're going to place our faith and our trust in a God who is not only great, but a love that's so great that when we, be, we begin to love him, he begins to change us, transform us, and lead our lives in the right direction that's going to bring solutions for the state of people's souls. And church, that's what we've been called to do, to live lives that are informed and activated by God's love as we choose to love him. Amen?